I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're looking today at Psalm 110 as we continue our summer in the Psalms. If you have Bibles with you and you're opening up to find it, if you open your Bible pretty much right in the middle, you'll come to the Psalms and then look for 110. It's also printed for you on the bottom half of page 5 in your bulletins. I would invite you to listen as I read to you from Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and open our, our, our eyes and our hearts that we might have an understanding into your word. And more than just simply an understanding, Father, we pray you would take your word and press it deeply into us. Shape us by it. Help us to see wonderful things about the gospel. And help us to be encouraged and motivated and empowered to go out and to live as the people you've called us to be this week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastor friend of mine tells the story of uh, one year when he went to the PCA's General Assembly. That's the gathering once a year of annually of pastors and elders from our denomination. And uh, this one particular year, my pastor friend was there with a number of his elders. And on one evening, they decided to head out for dinner. And so they went outside of the hotel. And because it's such a big conference and there are so many people there, there are always lots and lots of cabs waiting to take people to uh, uh, restaurants and various meetings that they need to go to. And so my pastor friend and and his elders walked out uh, there and they saw all these cabs and they were trying to figure out which one do we get into. And so my pastor friend started walking behind them and looking at the bumper stickers on the cabs. And he came up to one that said this, Islam is a forgiving religion. And he said, that's the cab we're getting into. So he and his elders piled into this cab and off they went. And as they got in, uh, he asked the driver, he said, so explain to me this bumper sticker on the back of your cab. I, I saw it. What does it mean that Islam is a forgiving religion? And the driver began speaking and didn't stop for about 30 minutes. Just kept going on and on about his understanding of what he said was Allah and his power, his sovereignty, his authority, the zeal that we are to have for righteousness And then at some point, my pastor friend asked him and said, well, explain to me, um, the the bumper sticker says that Islam is a a forgiving uh, religion. So what are the sins that are forgiven in Islam? And so the driver began to rattle off a number of them. He said, telling a lie, cheating, uh, getting a speeding ticket, those kinds of things. And uh, he said, well, the pastor friend said, well, what are the sins that, that can't be forgiven? The driver kind of, kind of, a little bit 
perturbed and he said, well, it's the big ones, you know, like murder and adultery. And my friend began to talk with him some more and to try to understand what he was saying. He said, those big sins, those are the ones that are unforgivable. He said, well, Pastor Friend said, well, then how is Islam a forgiving religion if it doesn't forgive those kinds of sins? And he said, well, Islam is, it forgives most sins, but, but not the ones that get repeatedly committed and, and not those big ones like murder and adultery. And Pastor Friend began to share the gospel, the Christian gospel, the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ with the driver. And at some point asked him if, if there are any people in the Bible that Islam looks up to, that admires. And he mentioned a couple. He mentioned Abraham, of course. But he also mentioned David. My pastor friend said, oh, that's interesting. You, you do know that David was both an adulterer and a murderer. And the cab driver was silent for a minute. And he said, well, maybe we don't admire him that much after all. <laughs> The conversation went on for a little while longer. Eventually, they pulled up to the restaurant and the group got out of the cab and they paid their fare and they tipped him well. And then my pastor friend leaned in the window and gave the cab driver his contact information. And he said, you know, one of these days you may commit one of those sins that Islam says can't be forgiven. And if that happens, I want you to contact me. Because Christianity has an answer for you. We're looking at Psalm 110 today. This psalm is incredibly important for us to understand. This psalm tells us that the God of the Bible is both all-powerful, with all authority, and all sovereignty, and all-gracious, all-merciful. It is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are accepted by God finally and fully and are empowered to go out and to live lives glorifying and enjoying God every single day. You may have heard Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament more than any other psalm, just about more than any other passage in the entire Bible. It is quoted or alluded to at least 25 times in the New Testament. Jesus himself refers to it. It's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Paul references it in Ephesians and Colossians. And the writer to the Hebrews mentions it many times throughout his book. One of the passages was our assurance of grace earlier from Hebrews 4, but also in Hebrews 1 and 5 and 7 and 10, the author of the Hebrews uses Psalm 110 as a primary source for his argument about who Jesus is. Every time that Psalm 110 is mentioned in the New Testament, it is either said explicitly or assumed that Psalm 110 is about Jesus Christ. Now, it does say this is a Psalm of David. It was written by David. But we have inspired authors of Scripture telling us that Psalm 110 is about Jesus Christ. And so today, what I want us to see are three things. Three things that it tells us about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the ultimate king, and therefore, we must do what he, te what he tells us to do. Secondly, Jesus is the ultimate priest, and so we must find our acceptance with God 
in him alone. And then thirdly, Jesus is the ultimate Lord, so we must offer ourselves freely in service to him. So first of all, Jesus is the ultimate king. We need to actually look pretty carefully at verses 1 and 2 to understand what is going on here. I would invite you to again look at verses 1 and 2, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David was speaking these words. He was writing these words. It's a psalm of David. And when David speaks, he begins by saying, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, you know, in the Hebrew language, the word God, the word Lord has different words that are used to to give us different connotations about who God is. And here in our English translations, you can see there are two different Hebrew words that are used in your English translation. The first Lord is all caps. That is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And the second Lord is not in all caps. That's the Hebrew word Adonai. So really what the Hebrew is saying is that Yahweh speaks to my Adonai. The Lord God Almighty speaks to the Creator and Redeemer. Old Testament prophecy had stated that the Messiah would come as a descendant of David. And here David is saying the Messiah would come and be his Lord, would be his superior The Jews that were reading this would have been very perplexed. How could a descendant of David be David's Lord? That didn't make sense. And we see this interesting exchange happen in the life of Jesus. It's recorded for us in the Gospels. And in Matthew chapter 22, we see this, we see this very interesting thing take place. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are plotting against Jesus. They are trying to get Jesus tripped up on his words. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to, uh, they're, they're, they're trying to get him to say something that then they can latch onto and arrest him. And so in Matthew 22, we see them asking these questions of Jesus. And they ask him, uh, so uh, uh, who are we supposed to pay taxes to? And then they ask him, uh, they give him this scenario and they say, there are these seven brothers and each brother lives a life and is married to this wife and then dies. And then the next brother marries the same wife. And, And in the resurrection, when they all are at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? All of these questions try to trip Jesus up. And every time Jesus answers the question and they were dumbfounded and they were silenced. And eventually Jesus takes the reins and says, I'm going to ask you a question now. And he looks at the Pharisees and he says, whose son is the Christ? Now, being good Jewish scholars, they say, well, he is the son of David. And Jesus responds by saying, how is it then that David, led by the Holy Spirit, said Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. How is it if David calls Christ, the Messiah, his Lord, how is it that he will be David's inferior defendant, descendant? Matthew tells us in the gospel that no one was able to answer a word. And from that day forward, everybody stopped trying to trick Jesus with their words. 
See, here's the point. Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 is about Jesus. And it's about Jesus being the ultimate king. Yes, he was the descendant of David, but he was greater than David. He was Lord over David. The Lord God Almighty, the first person of the Trinity, says to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Rule in the midst of your enemies with a mighty scepter. This is language indicating authority and power. Share in the rule of the throne of the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is the ultimate and sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all authority. He has all power that has been given to him to rule and to reign. Verse 2 tells us that with... With exclamation points. He rules from in the midst of his enemies. He goes right into the middle of his enemies. And he destroys them and overcomes them. Because Jesus is the ultimate king. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our obedience. We must do what he says. We can't treat Jesus however we want to treat him. We can't look at Jesus as simply just a good teacher, a, a wise person, a moral leader, an example for how we could live a healthy life. Jesus calls us to faith and obedience in everything that he says. So when he says things like, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, we must obey. I don't like paying my taxes. I don't like paying all my taxes, but it's not an option. As one of God's people, I'm called to be faithful in what Jesus has told me to do, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus calls us to be radically generous to those who are in need and not to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. It's not an option. We, we are called by Jesus to be radically generous with what he gives us to be good stewards with. Jesus tells us, don't be anxious about your life. Do you see the creation? Do you see how Jesus cares for the creation? How much more so the crowning jewel of his creation? Those who have been made in God's image. Jesus says, you shall not judge others. Don't focus on the speck in your brother's eye. And miss the log that's in your own eye. Jesus says that we must love our enemies. He says that we ought to pray and to bless those who persecute us. Because Jesus is the ultimate and sovereign king, we must believe him. We must obey him. We must worship him. Walter Chantry was the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Pennsylvania for some 39 years then served as the editor of the Banner of Truth for seven years. And he said this as he was reflecting on the authority of Jesus. He says, anyone who has caught a glimpse of the heavenly splendor and the sovereign might of Christ would do well to imitate the saints of ages past. It is only appropriate to worship him with deep reverence. You may pour out great love and recognition of your personal relationship with him. He is your Lord. You are his and he is yours. However, you are not pals. He is Lord and master. You are servants and disciples. 
He is infinitely above you in the scale of being. His throne holds sway over you for your personal life and for assigning your eternal reward. He is a king to be honored, confessed, obeyed, and worshipped. King Jesus calls us to obey him. Jesus is not only the ultimate king, he is also the ultimate priest, as Psalm 110 tells us. We see that in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you had been alive during the time that this was originally said, when it was originally written, this would have been very shocking to you. It would have been shocking to you because in ancient Israel, it was forbidden for kings to play the role of the priest or to take over the responsibilities of the priest. There were separations of powers and responsibilities like we're supposed to have here and even in this country. There's uh, differences in how they uh, went about their roles between kings and priests. Kings represented God to the people and priests represented the people to God. There's even a story in the Old Testament in Second Chronicles chapter 26 of a king of Judah who tried to take on the role of the priest. And it didn't go well. King Uzziah, king of Judah, became powerful and proud. And he tried to take over the role of the priest. He went into the temple to begin burning incense on the altar of incense, something that was not his responsibility, something that was not given to him by God to do. And Azariah, the, one of the chief priests, and 80 other priests showed up and confronted Uzziah, and he tried to kill them. The Lord intervened and brought judgment on him, and he was struck with leprosy, and he ended up dying in shame. Kings are not allowed to be priests in ancient Israel. But here, David is telling us in Psalm 110 that the Christ who would come would come not only as the ultimate and sovereign king, he would also come as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that too would have been a little surprising to the original hearers because they would have thought if he's going to talk about priests, he would have talked about Aaron or Levi. Who's Melchizedek? Melchizedek shows up only three times in the Bible. Here in Psalm 110, he is talked about in the book of Hebrews. And then when he's first told, when we first hear about him, it's in Genesis chapter 14. There, Abraham rescues his, his nephew Lot from the kings of Sodom. And on his, out of his, out of his way out of, on his way out of Sodom, Abraham runs into this man named Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem, but he is also called the priest of the God Most High. And we see this interesting exchange between Abraham and Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, brings him food and drink, and then Abraham gives a tithe of his battle winnings to Melchizedek. There are lots of conjectures and ideas about who Melchizedek was. He certainly was an actual man, but there are a lot of mystery. There's a lot of mystery about the specifics around his life. But regardless of those details, it is clear that Melchizedek was given to us in the scriptures in real life so that we would have a foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews tell us that Melchizedek was pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was both a king and a priest. He was the king of Salem, the king of peace, and he was the priest of the God Most High. 
And David tells us here in verse 4, the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn that Jesus not only will be the ultimate king, but he will also be an ultimate priest for us. It's only in Jesus that these two roles, these two titles come together in perfection. Because he is the ultimate king, we must do what he says. And because he is the most ultimate priest, we must find our acceptance. Our acceptance with God, our righteousness before God, we must find that only in him. Remember, this is David that is writing these words. And David wrote Psalm 110 sometime after he committed the sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. David knew he needed a priest. He needed a priest to bring him mercy and grace. And brothers and sisters in Christ, here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest and the ultimate priest, King Jesus, is not only the priest, he is also the provision. Jesus not only represents us to God, he actually becomes the sacrifice that we need to be accepted by God through. No priest in the Old Testament could ever do that. Jesus went into the very Holy of Holies in the ultimate temple of heaven and he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins on the altar. That's what the cross is all about. King Jesus, our great high priest, offered himself on the cross to pay for every one of our sins, past, present, and future, and to secure a declaration of righteousness for us. And because Jesus is our ultimate priest, we must find our acceptance with God only in Him. Our acceptance with the Lord God Almighty can come from no other place. Let me get the eyes of the young people here for just a second. Do you understand that you're not a Christian simply because of the family that you've grown up in. You have a wonderful family, no doubt. The Lord has blessed you in many ways by giving you godly parents, perhaps grandparents, that teach you the Word of God, that teach you the Gospel. But it's not because you're in that family that you're a Christian. You are only made acceptable to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through believing in Him, putting your faith in Him, and trusting in Him. And for all of us, that's true. We are not accepted by God because we're moral, respectable, upstanding citizens. We're we're not accepted by God because we do more good things in our life than bad things. We're, We're not accepted by God by giving lots of money away to worthy charities and ministries in the church. We're not accepted by God simply because we do a good job of raising a family and have a successful career. We're accepted by God only through faith in the ultimate priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you, because I know it in my own heart, it is so easy for us to slip into the thinking that we are made acceptable through other things. One way you can know that is if you are someone who is filled with pride and arrogance or constantly despondent and you can't tell how you are worthy. 
Do you understand that both of those feelings come from the same place, thinking that we have to do something to earn acceptance with God? And God tells us, no, it comes only, it comes purely through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we have acceptance with God. He is our ultimate priest. So it's only in him that we have acceptance and righteousness. A third thing that we see here is that Jesus is not only the ultimate king and priest, he's also the ultimate Lord. And as a result, we must offer ourselves freely to him. Look at verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The picture that we get here as Psalm 110 ends is a picture of the sovereign king and the Lord on the move. He is conquering all those who would oppose him. He is executing judgment. And he's even able to stop and to quench the thirst of his armies from the brook along the way with no fear of being overtaken or defeated. Most Old Testament scholars believe that David is probably thinking about the Old Testament judges here in verses 5 through 7. A picture of a warrior king, a warrior leader like Gideon or Samson leading God's people through battle and victory. And what he is showing us is Jesus, who is the ultimate king and the ultimate priest, is also the ultimate warrior Lord. He assembles his army, he assembles his people, and he leads us into battle to overcome evil. He leads us to victory. One commentator said in verses 5 through 7, we're moving from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament where Jesus is the better and greater priest Melchizedek to the book of Revelation where Jesus is shown to be the sovereign and powerful king that is returning. Like what we saw in our call to worship earlier in the service. And because Jesus is the ultimate Lord, the ultimate warrior, the ultimate victor, we must offer ourselves freely to him in service. Isn't that actually what verse 3 says? Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The people of God are meant to give themselves freely to the king's service. We are to live for him. I wonder if this idea is new to you. I hope it isn't. But there's a sense in which, as God's people, we have been called to be his Junior kings and junior priests here in this world. Now, lest you think that's something that I'm just making up, it actually is something that we get from the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 9 says these words, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called as God's people to be his to be his junior kings, to be his junior priests here in this life. So what does that look like? Well, one of the things that it looks like is to live out Romans 12 that we read earlier in our service. To be 
no longer conform to this world. To be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In our present moment today, it is easy, perhaps particularly tempting, to be conformed to this world. To think, to act like the world does. To be overly influenced by what we are hearing and reading and seeing. On the one hand, we might be filled with an inordinate fear. On the other hand, we might be filled with pride and contempt. On the one hand, we might be gullible and lack wisdom and discernment. On the other hand, we might be dismissive and condescending and incredulous that anybody would fail to see the things that we see. This is how the world thinks. Acting that way is being conformed to the world. Rather, God's people are to be transformed, have their mind renewed by the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures. We are to be neither fearful nor proud and arrogant. We are to be neither foolish, lacking discernment, nor condescending and incredulous. Not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of our mind through the Scriptures. What does it look like to be a junior king? It's not our job to win the ultimate victory. That's the thing that the King, king Jesus alone can do. But as His junior kings living out in this world... We are to live in light of the victory that's already been won by King Jesus. We can sing that line of the hymn, This is my Father's world, O let me ne'er forget, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We're called to be His junior kings to live with bold and yet humble confidence that King Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne. There's no need for fear in the midst of uncertainty and even chaos because King Jesus is on his throne. As his junior kings, we have the privilege, we have the responsibility, we have the joy of calling people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, of calling them to repentance and belief. So we have the privilege of living and calling others to live like Jesus in this world, to follow his ways, to obey his laws. We have the privilege of modeling what righteousness looks like. What does it mean to live as one of his junior priests? Well, what do priests do? They serve the poor. They serve the needy. They serve those who are on the fringes. They look for and reach out to those who are considered unlovely by the world. And they love them with a fierce love. They love them with humility and kindness and unselfishness. They love their neighbors with radical generosity. As God's junior priests in this world, we are to use our time and our treasures and our talents to put others before ourselves. To die to ourselves every day. To serve others. That they might be cared for and that they might see the gospel in action. Because Jesus is Lord, we must offer ourselves freely to Him. Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's greatest tragic plays. It was performed for the first time in the early 17th century. It's the story of a brave Scottish general named Macbeth 
who served the king of Scotland, King Duncan. Macbeth received a prophecy from three witches that one day he would actually become king and have the power of the kingdom at his hands. Macbeth, as well as his wife, Lady Macbeth, became so obsessed and consumed with this thought, with this ambition, that both Macbeth and his wife came up with a plan. And at the urging and help of his wife, Macbeth killed King Duncan and became and took the throne for himself. That began a long spiral downward into the abyss of tyranny and murder and madness. Eventually, Lady Macbeth becomes so racked with her guilt, so overwhelmed with her conscience bothering her, that she would walk around in the middle of the night, rubbing her hands, trying to get off the imaginary blood that was stained. Yet, here is a spot, she said, out, damn spot, out, I say. Lady Macbeth could find no help from her king. She could find no help from a priest. She was left on her own to deal with her sin and corruption. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no other religion. There is no other philosophy of life. There is no other worldview that can offer Lady Macbeth any peace. It is only in Christianity that the blood of Jesus, God himself, is offered to cleanse us from all of our sin. It is only because Jesus is our ultimate sovereign ruling king and our ultimate priest who becomes our provision for our sin. That's the only reason that we have peace with God. And here's the amazing thing. Our king, our priest calls us. And gives us this incredible privilege and responsibility of being his junior kings and priests. And so let's go out and let's live like who we are called to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for King Jesus for our great high priest, for our ultimate Lord. As we meditate on David's words from Psalm 110, as we see that expressed throughout your word, we pray, Father, that you would fill us with hope and encouragement, that you would give us the strength we need to not only give our allegiance to our king and to believe his promise of being our priest once and for all, but that we would have joy in going out and living as you've called us to live as your junior kings and priests. For your glory, for the building up of your church, but even for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.